Biblical hospitality. This has been a, a subject that's been very near and dear to my heart and our heart as a church. And what does it mean to really be a light for the gospel uh, in light of some very real cultural changes that are happening? And so there are three uh, national broadcast speakers, and then there are three live speakers from our um, general area and community speaking to more local needs. Um, it's $25 a ticket, and uh, you can go out to the hub and, and purchase those. Uh, you'll be in this room, and there'll be a bunch of round tables. There'll be a handful of people you don't know from other churches and from around the area. And uh, it's going to be a great opportunity to just process together um, these short TED-like talks. There's six of them. Again, it's all within about two hours. Um, and we're going to process together what does it mean as a church to do this. It's a great, it's a great conference format, and we're really excited to host it. So go to the hub. Uh, that's uh, uh, org slash hub. You can sign up there. It'll be a great time. So um, let's do this. I want to read something for you, then we're going to pray, and we'll jump in. Trust... Trust is my decision to be vulnerable because I believe the other will keep their word and act for my benefit. When someone breaks trust, their integrity and my heart are on the line. Trust is scary. Implicit in your decision, my decision to trust, is opening myself to hurt and pain and sorrow and more. True trust is profoundly vulnerable. If I trust you, I let you pass the point of safety, the line that I have drawn in the sand to protect myself. Everyone is allowed up to this point, but no further. Trust says you, you can cross my line of safety. What's on the other side of that line? I'm glad you asked. The dark parts of my mind, the dark parts of my heart and my dark decisions that I do not want under any circumstance published. The decision to trust is one of the most vulnerable things you can give to another person. So let me ask, who do you trust really? Who is permitted to look behind the curtain to walk over your line? Marriage is supposed to be the pinnacle relationship of trust. Here are the most vulnerable parts of me, my exposed heart, my exposed body, my exposed soul, my exposed past. When you trust someone, you also allow them to bless or to sabotage your future. The irony of trust is that without it, we are desperately lonely. We need to give it away or we suffer depression and sadness and anxiety. But with true relationships of trust, our souls thrive and flourish. So what are we going to do? Spouses, friends, bosses inevitably let you down even if they don't mean to, and maybe even don't understand how they did, but with God, there is no gamble. There is no risk. He always proves himself worthy of our decision to trust him. For many, learning to trust God is a lifelong process, and it is the same for Abram. With every promise Yahweh makes to Abram, both Yahweh's integrity and Abram's heart are on the line. And Abram is a man learning to trust God just like every one of us. And in the end, we will say with Abram, our God is a trustworthy promise keeper. Let's pray together. Father, as we open up your word, as we dig into Genesis 15, as we look at even the nature of this very confusing subject to 21st century Westerners of covenant, um, God, I pray you would open up our hearts and our minds and, and you would... Show yourself to be who you really are, which is 
the only truly trustworthy being on the planet. And the, and the irony is you already see past all of our lines. You already know, and yet you invite us into relationship. And God, you are the safest, most trustworthy, most reliable being that could ever be. And Lord, we're, we're in a world where people let us down, they break promises, and they don't come through, but you've never let us down. And every time we felt like you've let us down, it's usually been a misunderstanding on our end, maybe transferring to you attributes that aren't really you. We confess that, that we have so many wrong ideas about who you are. And Lord, even as we open up your word, as we look at this story of Genesis 15, would you, would you untangle us from our wrong ideas? Would you dismantle these really small notions of who you are? Would you, would you re-put us back together in our brains? Would you give us a better vision of who you are that is closer to your actual nature and character? Would you cause us to be more in awe of you and more grateful for our salvation? And God, I thank you that thousands of years ago you intervened into Abram's life and you saved him and you covenanted with him. And today we still feel the ripples of that in our own lives and our own salvation. And because you were faithful to him, you have been faithful to us and you'll be faithful to our children forever and ever. God, cause us to trust you more. Make much of yourself. We pray that you would do this in your word by your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Genesis 15. Um, three promises were made to Abram in Genesis 12, 13, and 14. Here are the promises. Summary. Um, offspring. Um, there's going to be a people who come after you. Um, you're going to have many, many, many descendants. Abraham is old, or Abram at this time is old, so the idea of him having kids seemed impossible. Number two, I'm going to give you a land. The land is going to have very clear designations. Um, this is going to be a land for you and your children, your offspring, your heritage for generations and generations. And finally, number three, that Abram would be a blessing and that his descendants would be a blessing and that the blessing would be anybody who blessed Abram would be blessed and anybody who cursed Abram would be cursed. So what happened last week was we ended in Genesis 15, 6. And in Genesis 15, 6, Abram had the most, I would say, important moment of his life. Uh, The text says this, that Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And the New Testament, the book of Romans, looks back on this event and says this is the moment where Abram was justified, where Abram was legally declared righteous before God, where Abram actually chose to trust in God. Abram received an impossible promise that he somehow would have a kid at his old age. And Abram believed in God and it was at this point where God said, listen, like you are justified. You are legally declared righteous once and for all and forever. And God's response to Abram's trust is to ratify a covenant. Now, God had already made promises to Abram. And so what he's going to do is he's going to ratify these promises in what's known as an ancient Near Eastern covenant. Now, what I have to do is I have to take you back in time. I need you to get your brain out of all of the conceptions that you have of a covenant. I need you to go back in time to the ancient Near East, uh, which is what A-N-E stands for on here. And I want to show you at least seven things that covenants are. Number one, uh, they are sacred, solemn promises with consequences. And not just any consequences. We're going to see here that they are severe consequences. You do not enter into a covenant relationship without knowing the repercussions are real. Like you have to really count the cost because typically covenants are going to hover over your life for the rest of your life. Um, Number two, they're actually fairly common in the ancient Near East. Um, These were semi-common things that people would do to bind themselves together in permanent relationship, whether it's a business relationship, a marriage relationship, a religious relationship, or something of the sorts. Number three is that they were legally binding. 
which means whatever two people decided in the act of covenanting together was a legal reality. And so if, if possibly the, the, the punishment was death, you had the ability legally to go enact the punishment on somebody else if they violated the terms of your covenant. This is pretty serious. Usually they're collaborative. Usually it's two people willingly coming together to make a covenant with one another where there would be blessings and there'd be cursings. Sometimes they're unilateral, which means they're one way. You have a more powerful being um, basically imposing himself on somebody who is less powerful. The less powerful being doesn't usually have a say in the matter. Almost always when you have a unilateral covenant, who is going to be the one that is primary, primarily benefiting from that? The powerful person or the weak person? It's going to be the powerful person. So usually, almost always in a unilateral covenant, the powerful person gets what they want, usually to the oppression of the weaker one. Often, covenants are memorialized through a sign. So for example, you have the Noahic covenant, the covenant with Noah. What is the sign? A rainbow. Awesome. Um, You have the covenant with Abraham called the Abrahamic covenant, and the sign of that is circumcision, right? How many of you thought you would say circumcision in church? There we go. So often memorialized through a sign. Now, here's what I love um, about covenants. Um, They are cut not made. The Hebrew word is berit, B-E-R-I-T, which, which means two things. Number one, it means to bind to one another. So two things are bound together, previously separated, and they come together. But it also has this notion that the means by which one is bound is to cut. And so the word berit means also to, to cut. And so the idea is that you are cut or something is cut with the intention of binding it together. We're going to understand how this Uh, plays itself out in the book of Genesis, but it's a powerful, powerful notion. And so you need to get these ideas around your your brain. Uh, The idea here of a covenant is a sacred uh, contract, if you will, with huge repercussions, very common in the ancient Near East. And these are going to be cut usually with animals. So I want you to point number one in your notes. Here's what it says. Only Yahweh would make a promise like this. So covenants typically began with a, a declaration of the major characters who are going to be making a covenant together, okay? So the major characters are going to be talking about themselves. Um, And so here's, here's the deal. Abram has been surrounded by pagan gods for 75 years of his life, and his God concept is massively distorted. Who he thinks God is, his God's nature, God's character, and God is going on a journey with Abram to dismantle all of his false notions of who God is. Like, just go back in time with me for one moment. Um, For those of you who are Christians in this room, go back to the moment where you first trusted in Jesus Christ, okay? How much have you learned about God from that day till this? Massive amounts. Like my personal story is, I would say, almost everything I thought I knew about God when I was 10 years old or four, I mean, I was four, but really by like 15 years old is when I started to really understand the weight of it. Um, When I was about 14, 15 years old, everything I thought I knew about God then, almost all of it has been proven to be wrong. Did you know that? Like, I knew his name was Jesus. I knew Jesus died on the cross for my sins. But his nature and his character, like, I thought God was just like me. And God has proven himself to be infinitely better than I am, infinitely more glorious, infinitely more beautiful, infinitely more intelligent. And so here's what we do. We take all of these, I don't know, uh, uh, cultural connotations and ideas of God. We import them to him. And then God's just got to break it down and refashion the truth of who he is through his word. It's powerful. So Yahweh is dismantling Abram's um, false concepts of who he is. Um, Abram is probably taking 75 years of these false ideas of who God is and transferring them over to Yahweh. And Yahweh is constantly saying, I am not like these other pagan gods. They're not even real. 
They don't even exist. At best, they're demons masquerading. At worst, they're figments of someone's imagination to make them feel better about reality. Verse 7, here's here's what it says. God is introducing himself. Uh, This is a very normal way of initiating a covenant. And he said to him, God said to Abram, three things. Number one, I am the Lord. Number two, who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans. Number three, to give you this land to possess it. Right away, God is making three major contradistinctions between him and every other false God in the world. Number one, I am eternal. Yahweh uh, is literally I am. It's this notion that there never was a time when he wasn't and there never will be a time when he won't be. He is eternally preexistent. He just is. Like if there was ever something, God preexisted that something always. All the other gods were made and they were fashioned and they're not eternal. They're uh, fashioned out of wood and inevitably they burn and fall apart. And what God is saying is this, I am bigger than those gods. I am eternal. I am everlasting. Number two, we learn this, that I am your savior. Do you really want to go back to Ur after now you have seen what I can do with you, in you, and through you? Now, now that Abram is getting a vision for who God is, he's realizing his past life is dark and it is not worth it. Better is one day with God than 75 years in Ur. And he can look back at his former life and say, I am so glad you have saved me. Number three, I am generous. Like I am literally, unlike every other God in the world who just takes and takes and takes, I am here giving to you and giving to you and blessing you and being gracious to you. Like this is not what a normal, normal God would do. Verse eight, he goes on and says, Abram says this, but Oh Lord, God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Let me tell you what Abram's doing right now. Abram is asking for a covenant. Abram is asking for proof, for a promise to be bound together with God, to say, how am I going to know you're going to do this? And the only way that God could answer would be with some sort of a covenant. Then God says to him in verse 9, bring me a heifer, three years old. By the way, it's, it's not a small animal. It's a female cow hasn't given birth yet, basically. So we're, this is a large animal. I just, you need to put that in your brain. A female goat, three years old. A ram, three years old, also not small. A turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he, Abram, brought Yahweh all these. Cut them in half and laid them each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove, drove them away. I want, you, I want you to notice a couple things. Did God tell Abram at all what to do with these animals? No, Abram knew intuitively what to do because this concept of a covenant is not a new idea. Um, Abram knew that what was happening is that a covenant between Yahweh and him was about to be established. It seems that Abram probably thought this would be some sort of collaborative covenant where God would make promises and Abram would make promises. And so here's what Abram does. He goes and he gets all the right animals and he starts cutting. Now, uh, I want you to understand a few things about how covenants were cut because uh, in that day, they didn't write down the terms of the agreement. What they would do is they would act the terms out. These actions, these stories that they would tell um, were unforgettably and permanently seared in their brain. So let me just give you a glimpse into the process. You would take these animals and you would cut them in two along the backbone all the way down their bodies. You would separate the parts 
And what would happen is you would place them far enough apart from each other that you could walk through it with another party, um, but the blood would come down, it would trickle, and it would form sort of like a small little river. The two parties would typically of some sorts hold hands together, and they would recite out loud the terms of the covenant that they are making together. Uh, Have you ever seen a very large animal cut open in half? I'm going to show you a video. No, I'm kidding. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. Relax. I'm not going to do that. I just want to make you sweat for a moment. But, but here's what I want you to understand. The, the process, we read the text, and the text just flies. But when you stop and ask yourself, how long would these moments take? This is a long, disgusting, sweaty, um, very vile, smelly like, encounter. This is taking hours and hours. Bones are breaking, tendons are snapping, guts are everywhere. This is a vile, disgusting thing. And with every break of a bone and with every snap of a sinew and tendon, like what's going through the person's mind, what's going through Abram's mind is these are the consequences for violating the terms of the covenant. This is serious and this is sacred. And what he knows about Yahweh is Yahweh is stronger than him. Um, Yahweh wins in a battle, right? And so he knows, like, there's no opportunity here. There's no opportunity here to fail, whatever these terms are going to be. I want to ask two questions. Now, why cut the animals in half? And actually, um, the answer is found all throughout ancient Near Eastern literature. But I want to fast forward to the book of Jeremiah, because the book of Jeremiah actually tells us why. And here's what Jeremiah 34, uh, 18 says. I'll put it on the screen for you. And the man who, who, and the men who transgressed my covenant And do not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me. I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and pass between its parts. The officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who pass between the parts of the calf. And so the reason you cut it in half is because this is a declaration that whomever violates the terms of this covenant, you are going to be just like that animal. That is going to be your future. Now, there's another part to this, and a question that I've asked, which is, why don't you cut the birds? It's very interesting, because Jeremiah 34, 20 goes on to say this, and I will give them into the hand of their enemies, and into the hand of those who seek their lives, their dead bodies shall be, what? Food for the birds of the air. And you don't cut the birds, because this is a reminder that the birds will now come down and eat your dead carcass, and this will be your lot. Well, we're, well, we are embarking on this covenant, this contract, this sacred obligation that we're walking into. This is a lifelong binding contract. You do not take this lightly. Aren't you glad that when you got married, those of you who are married, right, that this was not the process that you had to go through, right? Like, should you break the terms of this covenant, I'm going to cut you in pieces, the birds that are going to eat your dead carcass. Some of you right now are thinking, why didn't I do that? Like, that would have been way better. But watch what happens in verse 12. Jokes you can only make if you just keep going. All right. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. Now, you got to get this. Abram is unconscious for the rest of this. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. God is setting an emotional, solemn mood for this. This is the most serious event of Abram's life. The severity and the implications of this are going to hover over Abram's soul. And then here's what happens. Something very unexpected. Um, I have to constantly give you caution as you read the Bible because you're going to 
automatically rush through things because when we read through Old Testament narrative, like we're always in a rush to be able to check off the chapter list, right? Um, then you read stuff and you're like, oh, that doesn't make sense. We just go on. And what I want to, I want to, I want to show you something really amazing, something unexpected that happens. One of the most unusually gracious acts of God to Abram and his descendants. He looks into the future and he foretells something to Abram. Verse 13, then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain, you can trust what I'm about to tell you, that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. And at this point, Abram should be saying, what about the promises? You, you made promises to me and to my offspring. So how does, how does this fit in this promise that you made. But then he goes on and he says, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. I have just found nothing discourages the people of God more than the perception of unkept promises by God. So, so the Lord peers into the future and he sees exactly what's going to happen. He knows exactly how this is going to pan out. And here's what he knows, that Abram is going to have Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, etc. They're going to have kids. And the further away the promise gets from the reality, they're going to question, did God really say? Is God really trustworthy? Then imagine that you were the first generation of Israelites in Egypt, in slavery. Do you feel like your God, Yahweh, has kept his promises? Absolutely not. You're 200 years into slavery in Egypt and your people are being abused and they're being killed and they're dying. Like, this is a really sad thing. And and then you go back and say, but God promised he was going to bless us and and whoever blessed us would be blessed and whoever cursed us would be cursed. Well, these people are cursing the people of God and the Egyptians aren't quite being cursed. They're actually profiting off of it. And so you can imagine, so here's here's what God does. One of the most wonderful, encouraging things that God does for his people is he gives them realistic expectations of the future. And so when people come to Jesus Christ, he's very, he's very, very clear. Um, FYI, if you follow me, you very, very well may die. You will be persecuted. There will be people who don't like you. Aren't you so grateful that God gives realistic expectations? And so here's what, here's what happens. Every single generation after Abraham have to, has to own personally this promise. And they have to believe personally that God will come through. And what God does is he says, listen, I'm going to make this so easy for you. I'm going to tell you exactly how it's going to pan out. I'm going to tell you exactly how long your trial and tribulation is going to be. Wouldn't some of you love to know exactly how many years your trial and tribulation is going to be, right? Some of you are like, how long, oh Lord, until you finish this? God tells them exactly what they need to know so that when the trials and when the persecutions come and when the oppression comes and the slavery comes and the difficulty comes, their world isn't shattered. They aren't shocked. The distance between the promise and their reality is now bridged with a certain future that God gives them. Now you can imagine at this point, Abram is saying, okay, what about me? So you're going to take all of my descendants, you're going to put them in slavery for 400 years, but don't worry, it's going to work out. But like, what about me? I want my life to be okay. Verse 15, he says, as for you, Abram, you shall go to your fathers in peace. Do you, I just hear this like, oh, thank God. <laughs> you shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet 
complete. With every word God says, his nature and character are being displayed to Abram, and God is, again, dismantling these false, wrong God concepts that Abram is naturally and understandably bringing to the table. Here's one. God is slow to judgment. Let's be clear about the Amorites. They are a wicked, evil people. But even as wicked and evil as they are, God even has a limit. God looks at the wickedness and evil of people, and they have to hit a certain level of vileness before God will actually obliterate them from the face of the earth. Isn't that interesting? That God actually looks and peers into the future and says, as disgusting as these people are, like even I've got limits, right? And so God says, it's going to take 400 years for the Amorites to be as bad as they need to be before I will erase them from the earth. And what this should actually inform you is anytime God sends the, the nation of Israel to commit, quote, genocide, he's not doing it to really, really great people and really sweethearts. And they're like, oh, doggone, you just didn't trust in God? Let's kill him. Like, what's actually happening is God has given them opportunity after opportunity after opportunity, and their evil is so bad and so vile that you and I don't even have categories for it. And the only option from the sovereign God who knows everything they will do, might do, could have done, and would have done is to say the only option for peace on earth is if they're gone. That's it. There is no other option. If they stay on this earth, it will get worse. Our God is slow to judgment. When you think about your non-Christian family members and friends, are you not very grateful that you have a God who is very slow to judgment and he has a very high threshold of evil before he comes in and obliterates because here's what your heart is. No matter how evil someone is, you want them to know Jesus. And if God takes their life, then they have no more opportunity after that point. I step back and I'm very grateful that God is like this. Number two, God is outside of time. All of the pagan gods lived within the confines of time. They looked into the future with omens and promises, but they were vague in general. But the God of the Hebrews, the God of Abram, is outside of time. He knows the future, is certain about the future. So when we read in the book of Revelation that Jesus is coming back to judge the living and the dead, we don't look at that as a supposition. We look at that as a certainty because our God is outside of time and knows the future. You see, number three, that God is orchestrating not just individuals' lives, but nations, right? That God is in control of the ebb and the flow and the rise and the fall of nations, a theme all throughout Scripture. And if you're Abram, this isn't just a national God who has sovereignty over this small little territory in this tribe. This is now a God who has sovereignty over the nations, over time, space, and history, over eternality. This is a God who is bigger than all all of that, and now he is your personal God. This makes every other God in the world look trite and small and pathetic. And with every new interaction, Abram is understanding this. Yahweh is infinitely, infinitely more amazing than I could have ever imagined. Point number two in your notes. Only Yahweh would keep a promise this way. Verse 17 says this. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Uh, I want you to see what's happening. Get past the weird, okay? I want you to see what's actually happening. A smoking pot and a flaming torch represent the presence of God. In fact, um, these um, adjectives, smoking and flaming, 
um, are actually the same adjectives used to describe God's presence when he comes down on Mount Sinai and there's thunder and lightning and the entire ground shook. Um, they're also the same adjectives used to describe um, the fire that went in the wilderness um, by day. It was called, the presence of God was supposed to be, was called smoking and flaming. And anytime you looked at this smoking and flaming realities, it was scary and it was petrifying. And the reason this whole experience is solemn and gloomy for Abraham is because to be in the full presence of God, even in just a vision, is, is, is overwhelming. Now, here's what was supposed to happen. Um, Abram was supposed to walk with God through the cut animals. But here's what happens. Abram actually ends up being only an observer, an unconscious observer. That's it. He can just look and see, if you will, maybe, maybe in a vision. And I want to just tell you exactly what this means. God was telling Abram this, I will walk through for both of us. I will take on myself the responsibility and the repercussions for both of us. You tell me what God, what pagan God would ever do that for his people? Yahweh is, he's no dummy. He knows that there is no way Abram would ever be able to keep a covenant with him. We are, by nature, covenant breakers. It doesn't matter what the terms are. Unless God fulfills it in us, through us, and for us, we have, we have no hope. Let's, just, let's take another step back, and let's just observe for a moment some of the differences between the pagan gods and Yahweh. Uh, the pagan gods initiate threats merciless in failure. They take innocent life, require arbitrary blood. They use people as slaves and they abandon people in failure. Like, I don't know about you, but like, that's not the kind of God I want. But here we have this. Yahweh initiates blessing. He's merciful in failure, preserves innocent life. Like, Yahweh's never gonna come to you and say, take your newborn son, your firstborn son, put him on an altar kill him, and then let you follow through with it. By the way, um, God asked to bring Abraham, Abraham through this later only to show him, I would never do this to you. All the other gods would do this to you. I would not do this to you. Requires perfect blood, not just generally human blood, just to satiate some sadistic desire he has. Loves us as sons and sacrifices himself in failure. Did you just see the massive contradistinction between these two gods? Unbelievable. Which one is more co- compelling to you? Yahweh a thousand times over. And this is what I want people to see so badly. Every other God and version of God now and then that we make up oppresses. It does not cause us to flourish or to have true life. Only following Yahweh, only following God. Now what would, what would, cause, what would cause a God like Yahweh to take upon himself a self-curse? Um, I, what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to import um, all the rest of biblical revelation onto this God because Yahweh is the same yesterday and today and forevermore, is he not? He was always Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He always will be Trinity. Like God is the same always. So what I know about God now, I know about God then. The only plausible thing that would make a God take upon himself a self-curse is if he is a Father God. Yahweh has so many attributes, but at his relational essence to his children 
He is a father. Every impulse of a semi-decent dad is to sacrifice, to love, to protect, to build up, to discipline, to develop character through trial, to persevere. All of this was put inside of every one of you dads, by the way, to give you a glimpse of the heart of God. The, the false gods, the conjuring ups of gods that, that all the false religions had, use people as slaves. But the true God, when you follow him, he sees you as a son or daughter. He views himself as a father. In fact, he created in creation the notion of fathers so that every one of us would have an idea, a glimpse of what he is like and how relationally he sees those who follow him. Only a father God. And I'm telling you, there is not one fatherly notion in the false religions, those false gods made up by human minds, demons masquerading. There is not one notion of a good fatherly love for their people. They use them and they abuse them as slaves, but now Yahweh. When you come to Yahweh, you come to a father who loves you, who seeks to bless you, who does not use you to oppress you, but loves you as a son or daughter. Verse 18 says, On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. No conditions. No conditions on Abram. The only conditions were on the one cutting the covenant. And that would be Yahweh. Abram might have cut the animals, but Yahweh cut the covenant. Notice what it does not say. It does not say, Abram made a covenant with the Lord. Here's what I think, one of the most beautiful things that God wants to get through to every one of us, that Abram and all of his descendants are going to realize forever, your salvation is 100% of God, and we do not take one ounce of the credit or glory for it ever. This is what God does. He makes unilateral, one-way covenant, In salvation, he saves you, commits himself to you, promises himself to you, despite you. Abram did nothing here. Abram taking credit for this is like a son being born and then five years down the road saying, I chose to be born. That's complete foolishness. That is not what happened. No no child has ever chosen to be born, right? No child can ever take credit. Hey, you know, mom and dad, like, you know, if it weren't for me, I wouldn't be here. Right? Like, <laughs> nobody says that. Like, no child can take credit for this. And so it is with salvation. Salvation is all of God, initiated by God, pursued by God. All of God. Every bit of it. And Abram and his descendants forever and ever and ever would know this. Abram was running from God. Abram was trying to throw away the promises of God, but it was God who initiated. So one of the, thing, one of the, one of the realities in this covenant is, is God is putting his integrity on the line. He's putting his integrity on the line. He's putting his nature, his character, who he is. Now, really, is this on the line at all? No, because God can only do what God does, and God is only a promise keeper ever. But if God doesn't fulfill his promises, then his integrity here is on the line. And here's what he's saying to Abram. You can trust me. I, I understand that it's hard for you to trust me because every false god in this world has oppressed you and abused you and stolen from you. But I want you to tell me this. I want you to trust me because I will truly bless you. And there will be difficulties. Don't get me wrong. I will ask you to do impossibly difficult things. We've seen that for the last four weeks. But you can trust me with your body, with your heart, with your mind, and with your soul. I am a promise keeper 100% of the time. Verse 18 to 21 ends 
with um, even more logistical details of the promise. He says to him, uh, to your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cabanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites, like as if he needed more clarity. But here's what he's saying. All of these people, all of these tribes, I see their evil. And the time is going to come when their evil reaches a pinnacle, a judgment, and I will send you and your people in to obliterate them, and I will give you this land. I, I, I am a promise-keeping God, and you can count on it. Now, here's the deal. Did Abraham, after his name was changed, did he see all this come to pass? Nope. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. He saw one major promise come to pass, and that was he got to finally see the birth of, the miraculous birth of his son, Isaac. So what? What does God want you and me now, 21st century, thousands of years later, because of the Abrahamic covenant? We're going to get into more details over the next couple weeks. We're going to dig even deeper here. But what does he want us to know? One simple thing. When you look at the promise, and you look at the panorama of history, God is worthy of our trust. Some of you have trusted him for salvation, but you have not actually trusted him for your future. You've trusted him to get you to heaven maybe, but between this point and your death, right, you're holding things very tightly. And I think the thing that God would just want to say to you is, I am trustworthy. Whatever I ask you to do, no matter how hard it is, it will be for my glory and your good, and you will get to the end, and you will look back and say, you're right. You were totally trustworthy. You never once let me down. The book of Hebrews in chapter 6. I'll put this up. I want to I read this because this is, um, the book of Hebrews takes this Abrahamic promise and just doubles down on the nature and the character of God and just kind of shows us um, if there's one big thing we can take away from this, at least this section of scripture, here it is. So um, I'm going to read a little slowly, but I want you to just follow the text and pay careful attention. For when God made a promise to Abraham, Since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you. You know how you say, like, I swear by my mother's grave, right? There's nobody higher than God. I swear in the name of Jesus Christ, right? You can't go higher. And God's like, I don't have anybody else to swear by but me, and I am by nature a promise keeper and trustworthy, so I'll swear by my own self. Thus, Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise, and the promise was that he would have a son, Isaac. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs, that's that's all of us, of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he's not changing his mind, he's not left and right, he's got one purpose, he's a promise keeper, he's going to do exactly what he said he was going to do. He says he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie. I love this. God cannot fib. He cannot mislead you. He is obligated by the very nature of his character to tell you the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, the essential truth, the first time only ever. He's just a truth teller. He doesn't lie. He doesn't mislead. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. Here's what he's saying. Those of us who have come to Jesus Christ by faith, we've chosen to take this vulnerable thing of trust and put it in his hands and say, we trust you. Here's here's what he's saying. God has made a promise to us. 
that he would keep his promise, that he would be a covenant keeper. And he swore by an oath. He swore by his own name because there's nobody greater and God will do what he says. So those of you who have taken refuge for your souls in Jesus Christ, here's what he says. I want you to have strong encouragement. Hold fast to the hope that is set before you. Verse 19, he says this. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. That God is willy-nilly and kind of keeps his promises. No, he's, he's a covenant-keeping, trustworthy God. It's a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. And for those of you who are here over the last couple of weeks, this is for you. Having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. God did not let Abram make the covenant because Abram is a covenant breaker by nature. God walked through the animals because he is a covenant keeper by nature and he's trustworthy. God does not lie when he makes promises. Why? Because he's trustworthy. And Jesus came, why? Because God is a trustworthy promise keeper. When Jesus Christ came, this is God bearing on himself his body, and his soul, and emotions. The heirs of Abraham and their violation of the covenant. God did not just make the covenant, kept the covenant, and took on himself the penalties for the covenant, which is to be, at the end of the day, killed. Let's pray together. Father, as we celebrate communion, I am struck by how what happened in Genesis 15 massively impacts us today. You made a promise to Abraham of whom we are all heirs through faith in Jesus Christ. We are part of the offspring of Abraham through faith. And because we believe in the God of Abraham, the same God who made a covenant to him made a covenant to us. You've promised to bless us and you've also promised to take on yourself the full weight of our covenant violations. And so Lord, we stand before you today as covenant violators, but remembering our covenant keeper. Thank you for taking the punishment for our sins on yourself. We are so grateful. And God, as we come to this communion table, would you Remind us that we deserved, we deserved to pay the penalty for our covenant breaking, but God, you took that for us because you love us. What father would not do that for his children? Thank you for being a good heavenly father. We love you. And we remember what you have done for us through Jesus, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen?